Welcome to the MacFab Engineering Podcast, a weekly show about all things engineering, DIY project, manufacturing, industry news, and Python coding. We're your hosts, electrical engineers, Parker Dolman. And Stephen Craig. This is episode 316. So So I got a new project. Well, I say new. Uh, This year, I've been going through the list of like, what's the oldest project? Finish that. What's the next oldest project? Finish that. Keep going down the line. So in that series of projects, I've got one that I've been wanting to do for a long time. And uh, it has something unique about it. Uh, it, it this project involves star grounding. Uh, and we spoke a little bit about grounding last week. And we were going to talk about this um, topic last week, but we pushed it to this one. Now... We've talked about grounding in the past, about different methods of grounding in your circuitry. And for the most part, I think with the projects that Parker and I work on, we do like plane grounding or or even like split or broken or cut planes. But on our PCBs, it's mainly plane or, or we I think we've used the words plane and plunge before where it's, yeah. you know, take apart, go to a via, drop down to your ground plane. And typically that's yeah, so you have right? One layer is essentially your ground plane. It's your zero world, your your reference, reference plane. But but I I kind of so on this new project I'm working on, it it has brought up an interesting conundrum. And and the the what I wrote in our show notes is how big is too big, and what I mean by that is, <clears throat> let's just pretend like you had a board that was that you had a ground plane on it, right? But that board is. 20 inches, 40 inches, 100 inches wide, like it starts to get to the point where like that ground plane and the proximity of things or the distance you have to travel across that ground plane really starts to matter. And in this project that I have right now, it's sort of working out that way. So um, this project, I, I started it a long time ago and it's a kit that came as part of a, a forum that I was involved in many years ago, where the basically we all purchased one one gentleman developed this board and we all purchased this board, and basically reference designators are all over the board, but no values. You got to populate it with whatever you want, so you could sculpt it to be however you want it to be. There was a few things that were predetermined, uh, just because they were required for like housekeeping in the circuitry, but uh, most of it you got to pick yourself. Well, one of the things that was predetermined was general ground zones on the board. In fact, there's nine like of them. architecture. Right. Just overall like layout concept. There's there's nine zones on this board. And this board is, by the way, enormous. It's like three inches tall, but it's like twenty inches long. It's this huge like hockey stick of a PCB. And uh and maybe maybe not 20 inches. I might be exaggerating there, but it's not too far from 20 inches. So each sub-circuit on this board has its own ground plane. So this, this is planes, but the, each plane services only its handful of circuits that attach to it. Uh, so then there's there's nine individual like squares of copper basically on it. And then each one of those planes has... A, uh, a pad on it that's just called ground and then a number. So ground one through nine on it. And then the, whoever builds it gets to choose how you ground 
each one of those. So what you could do is you could run a wire from ground nine to ground eight, and then a wire from ground eight to round seven, and you could daisy chain them all the way down the line, and then pick any of them at any of those locations, and you could run a, a ground to the chassis, and then everything is grounded, right? You could uh, you could also say pick ground one, which is at one far end of the board, and ground that. Maybe you ground it near where jacks are or other external components on the on the chassis. It's sort of like pick your own adventure or choose your own adventure with it. But one of the recommended ways of grounding this circuit, I've always wanted to do, but I've never, I, I guess you could say, <laughs> never had the balls to do it. In other words, never like never been willing to invest all the money in a design to try it. But since I don't get to pick this design, like I've, I'm going to give it a shot. I've never actually done star grounding in this way. So the way that the, the recommended way that this circuit is built is each one of those ground planes has an individual wire that is attached to it and then sent all the way to one ground point on your chassis. And, and technically, when you're doing like a system design, especially with mains, you're you're going to have two connections to your chassis and two only. Um, you're going to have one near your power inlet where your mains enters, and that should have some kind of Loctite or star tooth washer or something that digs into the chassis. And that's your protection earth that's your that's your safety ground that makes sure that the chassis can never become live and uh the user can never touch something that becomes live because if anything does short to the chassis it'll blow the fuse uh from current flowing through that so that's your safety ground that's one of your ground connections that happens in your system the other ground connection is your reference for your circuit and that is what I'm talking about here, my star ground is where I run an individual wire from each one of these planes to this star ground. And I'm actually going to build it that way uh, because it's outside of my normal way. But I really want to try the performance on it. And it's got, it's got me thinking a lot about this zero land, this ground world that most of the time it's not that i don't pay attention to it but like once i've established my rules on it like i connect to it and that's that right it just there we go there's my return path but uh so in this situation the reason why i wrote how big is too big is in in this particular situation because my pcb is so large and i have a star point at one point in the chassis some of my w ground wires from these ground planes are going to be in m many many inches long um mm -hmm. in some cases some of the grounds are pretty far away from my star ground where it actually exists on the chassis uh, upwards of 10 15 20 inches and that's a long way for ground current to flow and because each one of these grounds is individually separated but power flows between the circuitry on the grounds that means current has to flow between multiple of these ground so so in some cases i've taken ground loops or the ground path current in this circuit in some cases i've taken it from what could be an inch or less and made it 30 inches and yeah. and you know like gut feel is like that's not good right yeah you i i foresee that being basically a big antenna on your in your in your ground return or your current returns basically right um right now 
how bad is that depends on the opinions right of of your of your circuit return well it depends it depends significantly upon what frequencies of interest the whole thing does uh, deals with right yeah um like you could think of like one thing i was thinking of was uh you mentioned like your 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 signal current too so it's like how much current is there like the if you had a lot of current flowing between these sections like passing one to the next section then you get a lot of current on those ground returns right because they have has to come back the other way thus you start getting if you go from one inch to 30 inches and you just say you're drawing an amp now you're talking about actually significant voltage differences between different stages they're both references right right well um so i so it really depends i think is is on um like how much current is actually flowing and is that actually going to be a, a does it actually matter Exactly, exactly. And and that's that's the whole fun part about this project is like I said, I, I kinda had I, I had kind of always been averse to doing it this way. Um, but because this project is set up that way and I don't really get to choose, I, I want to give it a shot and just see how mm-hmm. it works. And I'm actually soldering the wires in such a way that if it doesn't work, I could change it to something else. Yeah. Um in fact, uh I was uh I was lucky to get a three uh, D printer recently um after we had discussed on a previous episode like should i get a 3d printer i was able to get my hands on one uh thanks chris craft for that and uh so this this 3d printer is great for printing little brackets and things like that so in terms of doing wire and cable management i'm making little brackets that will help quite a bit with uh doing this and make it really easy if i want to switch uh topologies let's put it that way but you know there's one argument about if you're doing daisy chain ground so in other words you have you know you have one part of your circuit feeding another part and then further down the line it feeds another part and you continue that however many stages you have uh the impedance of every ground return sum uh in that style of grounding uh and that so if you have significant currents then something further down the line can impact something much further up uh, up the line but if you do true star grounding where they all return to one point, then it separates each portion uh, independently, uh, such because your ground recurrent is for each stage returns on one wire as opposed to all the wires summed together. So in it, it it's totally frequency dependent, if you ask me. I think lower frequency circuits may actually benefit from something like this. I wouldn't ever dream of doing something like this in something that has like a switch mode supply or something that was mm-hmm. high speed digital. But if you're working in lower speed analog stuff, I can see the benefit from it because, okay, consider set steady state. Like, okay, obviously this is an amplifier cause that's, I do like 90% of that, but so consider steady state. That's the situation where I want the least amount of interference and the least amount of noise. Uh, so in steady state, we're talking about DC currents on all of these things. So if we're talking about DC across 30 inches of wire, that's already low enough impedance. Um, if that provides me lower steady state, no input signal noise, well, that's preferable in that case, because then that's more quiet as a whole. Even if it picks up more noise during operation, in other words, during a signal flowing through, 
say those act as a bit of an antenna well if i'm rejecting those frequencies anyway uh during the dynamic conditions of having a signal flowing through it i may be able to let's say deal with any negatives that come with it so mm -hmm. I, i'm just excited to try it because it is it, it seems counterintuitive to everything that seems right like grounding to me always seems like get to my my ground as quickly and as short as possible uh, and and provide the least amount of interference to there. At the same time, try to establish as as good of a reference as possible with my ground. And this seems like it meets some of that criteria where my reference is it's going to be great because everything is referenced to exactly the same point. Uh, so every uh, so if well, not really still though well that's the whole point of star grounding though they are because they're all the grounds meet at one individual depends point. on if it's all the wires of the same length then yeah i could agree with you oh okay yeah no no i, I see what you're getting at yeah but but okay in in a situation with higher current i think uh that of course that comes into play because now you're talking about voltage <laughs> drop across the uh, the wires. However, even in this situation, if you if I had one of my stages that had higher current and I had voltage drop across that wire, it would only apply to that stage because everything else has its own wire to it. So if voltage drops more across that heavy current stage, none of the other stages, uh, shall we say, see it. Whereas if in the daisy daisy chain situation, depending on where that that heavy current stages in the string of things it could affect other things that's where the shared mm -hmm. impedance versus separate impedance is really attractive in this situation so regardless all all this this boils down to is nine individual chunks on one giant pcb are all going to have nine individual ground wires that all bolt to the chassis at one point uh so i'm oh, really curious to see I... if it makes a difference make all those wires the same length that's going to be really okay so the hardest part about that would mean that some of those wires will just have bundles of extra length Coiled, yeah yeah at, at the same time i'm putting i'm strategically putting my star point to be closest to the most sensitive parts so the most sensitive parts mm -hmm. have the shortest wires the least sensitive parts have the longest uh, least sensitive being like the input rectifier and, and whatnot. And it's important to note that the way that this circuit works is n it's not every single ground in the entire circuit flows to the star ground. Um, so each circuit has um, all of its own individual ground return path. So like it's contained, it's contained, yeah. right? So there's a capacitor that feeds each chunk of the circuit so signal currents don't flow through the ground return wires signal currents are contained within their own little loop so in terms of their ground return path it's actually short because they're flowing within mm -hmm. that little ground path in the chunk it's just the interstage currents yeah. will flow through the, the, the chunk to chunk <laughs> the chunk to currents. chunk ground i like that yeah yeah uh so so perhaps there are some tangible uh results from this i'm wondering if i get lower noise lower interference and lower uh chance of oscillation because of this i i don't know the all the reasoning behind it but i've been told that you get better better radio frequency uh rejection by doing it this way but i don't hmm. know if there's empirical data i could give on 
something like that. I always like thinking about these kind of problems, um, similar to those problems you get in in you know college, where like if you have a one ohm resistor array that's infinite, what's the resistance between A and B, right? Mm, yeah. Like think of thinking of the problems like that. So like, what if the, you had the star ground, right? Yeah. And then what if you made the sh- the wires infinitely short? And the star ground's infinitely big, which is basically what a that's a ground plane, plane is. That's a that yeah. is 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 and a so, really simplistic way of looking at a ground plane. Yeah, so th- th- but that's that's like you, you, when you say star ground, and you just turn one knob the other way and the other knob the other other direction right. for the for a star ground, you get this plunge in plane style. Exactly, and and. I have a circuit that I'm I'm dealing with at work right now that has I don't remember how many components. It has a a gazillion components on it and lots and lots of different varying currents and lots of different varying power supplies. I have six different power supplies that are all doing different stuff. It's got digital, it's got analog, um it's got a bunch of channels that need to be separate from each other. And you know what? I did Plunge and plane. I did a big old ground plane, and there's excellent channel-to-channel separation on it, mm-hmm. even though I've got currents flowing all over the place. Now, here's the thing. I did chop up my ground plane a little bit. I knew one area of the board that had extra current, and I so I, I, I routed all my power traces a particular way, and I made sure that return paths followed those power such that those were not near anything sensitive. And then I actually chopped up my power planes to flow individually to all of my channels. So I couldn't have, I couldn't basically have uh, power flowing from one channel to another channel. They were in their own buckets in a way. So I, I did a lot of work making sure that my power was routed uh, in chunks, but my grounds, I actually let them flow wherever made the most sense for them. And the, mm-hmm. it, the separation's fantastic on it. So that that's a situation where like yeah the 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 wire length is really really small the star is really really big really really big but the question is how big can you make that star before it stops being a star yeah interesting question it is yeah it, you know and and it actually it, uh, so I've seen a lot of th- this is not a good way of doing things but I've seen a lot of people use the chassis as the star just drop on and bolt to the chassis wherever you can because hey it's a big huge monster chunk of steel right you can just show you know plug to it and there you go but that usually ends up with bad really poor results if you yeah that, that's actually how um a lot of old older cars and a lot of people who work on cars that's you consider the chassis as your ground yeah and, and, and you so allow you, current to flow through it through it um which is fine ish well let's just put it this way it works but it's not ideal no it's not ideal um so what i do on old old cars this is actually kind of interesting i do kind of like a hybrid basically i'm like if it's under an amp is my rule put it on if it's under an amp it goes to chassis okay if it's over an amp i'm going to have a return wire that goes back to the battery yeah yeah. Um, and so what I usually will do is I put a terminal, like a, a, a ground terminal thing and the engine compartment, and then I put one in the back of the car. And so 
and then a, a big wire that connects them together and then you know onto the battery um and guess what i never have any electrical problems that everyone else complain about <laughs> on old cars <laughs> i i had a fun um uh but it's it's, it's going to your kind of like each area is kind of like localized so to speak yeah and then you have a star ground which is ends up being your battery post right at the end of the day and then and, and in a lot of ways like whenever you purchase equipment like your computer or your monitor or the light bulb or, or whatever everything that plugs together they are being star grounded right like mm -hmm. everything like your computer and and your interface and your monitor they all get grounded at whatever strip you plug them into or the wall like they're they're starred together at that point right so i mean it does work but um even then you can run into issues because if you have significant current flowing between those two that has to flow down to the star and then back you you run in with some you run into problems with that so yeah, yeah. i'm just doing the same thing but inside my chassis Yep. And, you know, I think I had a problem with my first car. I had a Nissan Sentra back in the day, a little, little tiny guy. And um, if you had the radio on and you accelerated, you could very, very clearly hear noise increase with the RPM of the of the engine. Oh, you get a little ignition ignition noise on your on your radio antenna. Exactly. And I would not be surprised if if I ran a dedicated ground from the radio to the battery negative terminal, I bet you that'd go away. Yeah, it would probably go away. Yeah. So yeah, circuit grounding is is. I I like this situation where it's like okay, I don't get to choose. Someone else chose for me, and I'm choosing to make this project. So I play by their rules, and and yeah, and yeah. other people who have built this have reported positive results. It's just if I'm going to spend the money doing a project, I usually just don't go this route. But if this has good results, maybe I'll start to incorporate that in future designs. Yeah, probably so, not um, <laughs> for like the pinball controller I, I designed um, the current one mm. yeah, Pentar um, so how it is is basically anything it's I have a it's four layer board so I have signal 3.3 volt ground signal and uh, it's all divided up for like because there's like a 12 volt line is based and it's 12 volts and 5 volts is also have to come off the board to do other pinball stuff. But when those come off the supply and those go to the connectors and they hook up to like MOSFETs, basically, for example, because um, you have to control some lights. Well, that 12 volt return, I actually have its own ground return for that 12 volt. Yeah. Because I want that to also go basically because like if your power inputs on one side of the board and then you have 11 inches of board where you're picking up that power on the other side, right? Well, I don't want that 12 volt ground return to also just mingle with the, the logic level return stuff, mm. the 3.3 volt stuff. Yeah. And so it has its own ground, even though it's referenced the same. So it actually is like a star ground on the right side of the board. So it goes, so it has a 12 volt line that goes all the way across. And then the returns of those, basically those MOSFETs, I guess, um, it'd be the, uh, not the gates, not the source. The, the, dra the drain, right? Well, no, the other way around. Probably the source. You're right, source. Yeah, source. So the sources of all the MOSFETs are connected together, and then it has a trace that goes all the way back parallel to the power supply. That 12 volt, all the way back on the other side. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so so it, it, it works really well. Inside the cabinet of a um, 
of a pinball machine, is there a is there a, like a, a designated star ground that everything gets connected to? Mm, like the rails and like the legs and stuff. Yeah, they're connected to like the ground pin on the you know 120. Well, okay, line. so like okay, so take in a in a pinball machine. Um, I, okay, I'm just guessing here, but you've got you've got some kind of thing for the speakers. You got a you got an, an audio amp for the speakers. You have something yeah. to drive the screen, right? And then you mm-hmm. have so, uh, some kind of a computer system, something yep. to drive all the solenoids and all that stuff, uh, and lights and things. And that's your board: solenoids and lights and yeah. and all mechs and things like that. But low those, level control. So those four different subsystems, how do they all get grounded together? So audio amp screen uh, drivers from computer to our board it's grounded through the usb connector Mm. okay Uh, because that's how they communicate yeah yeah um and then there's a uh 48 volt and a 12 volt and 5 volt power supply and those are connected on the ac side of course Mm. but then they're all their outputs are also connected to the, the grounds are connected. They're all tied at the power supplies, right? Uh, no, we actually connect them. The five volt and twelve volt are like the same power supply. Yeah. So they have a shared ground. Okay. Already, but the forty-eight volt we actually connect those on the board itself. Okay. Um, for that's for better referencing, basically, because like the closer you can connect those together on your MOSFETs on your gates, because we don't have. Um, because we don't have isolation there, yeah. So we want to make. Sh- I basically want to make sure that that reference is as close as you want that to be equal you, as that possible. Your lowest which is noise one on the board, yeah. Because right. you could there is a like a zero ohm resistor you could depopulate and then connect it on your power supply side if you wanted to. Generally, not a good idea. Yeah, you don't. Make, you don't, don't want do anything tripping on either, right? Like that would be yeah, real yeah. bad. Yeah. Um. Let's see. That's interesting because it seems like a hybrid approach. You're not doing a star ground. Like things are inheriting ground. A little bit, yeah. Yeah. Which um, I suppose works, right? Because I mean, like it, most of pinball is digital. It's digital, low current, and some stuff high current. Yeah, basically. Yeah. Um, it's not too big of a. Yeah, because it, it's it's um like even in older games and stuff like that, like. All just stuff like the person touches, it basically goes to a. It's like the chassis on a, on on an amplifier. It all goes through the center prong on the. Uh, yeah, the safety plug. ground. Yeah, because you have that. Because that's what the person t- like all the metal rails, the coin door, all that stuff has to. Let's be just grounded. put it this. That's non-negotiable. You have to have yeah. that. You have to have that. Yeah. So that's that's so that's like. Chassis ground for a pinball machine is that part. Yeah, it's because it does the same function. Um, whereas everything else is like, I mean, it's DC side, so whatever makes know. the most sense. Whatever makes the most amount of sense, how to ground it. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. Okay, that's interesting. I w- I would almost think that your board, the one that controls all the actual switching, that having the the quietest ground would make the most sense. Um, and then, and then the computer board inheriting its ground from your board, uh, ah. which, which it sounds like that's similar to what you already have. Yeah, I guess so. Um, 
because it yeah, cause, cause I remember it's also what it's it's only a USB connection between the computer and the board. The does the com- does the computer inherit power from your board as well, or does it get separate no. power? Gets its own separate power. Ah, has its own AC power supply. And then how is that not a ground loop? If it, if if it oh it has its own floating supply, or is that supply yeah, also yeah. grounded? Oh, I, I'm pretty sure it's all grounded. Yeah. That's interesting, because then I'm curious how that isn't a, a ground loop, or if it is, it probably doesn't matter, I guess. Because if you have your power supply for your computer board grounded, and then you have your power supply for your board grounded, and then you're connecting those through a USB, now you got a ground loop between that whole system. Mm-hmm. Um, well, you're technically yes, but you don't run. You don't run. So in that situation, you don't run. You're not running bus power. Um, it's just so you're simple. basically, yeah. You don't have any current flowing back on your USB or on your USB V bus and ground lines. There's no current there. Well, but but that's the whole thing about ground loops. You don't get to choose where the current flows, because now the current has two paths to go. It chooses whichever one. That's why you put a little little ferrite bead there. <laughs> Yeah. So you, then you choose. Them. Yeah. You you get to uh, coerce the current. I coerce. Guess. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Well, and and, and, and right you know what? I'm sure ground. it's it's really it's that's also got to be frequency dependent. So if your ground loop noise oh, yeah. is high frequency, it's not going to pick the longer path. You know, it's not going to, or it's going to pick whatever path works best for it. And if yeah, there's a bead exactly. in the way, it ain't picking that path. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. I mean, that's the kind of. So when you look at a lot of um, USB designs, yeah. Like the shield, so technically, the shield is only for. I think this is. It's mentioned, if I recall, in the USB spec, but it's, it doesn't actually tell you how to do it, because they say they <laughs> well, basically cause, say because it, because it's choose your own adventure with the shield. Yeah, because um, what they say is the shield. Because the main thing is the shield on on the USB cable, is like okay, the shield should only be connected on one side. Okay, because that's how if it was connected on both sides, then you have basically a ground loop in there, like in your cable. Yeah, you're not supposed to have that. Right. Um, so they, they they basically say, okay, shield only one side, and you go, okay, what side should be shielded? And they, they go, good luck. Whatever. Yeah. They how do you know that you what, what you're plugging into is the side that is, does or doesn't have the connection? Exactly. You don't. So the trick <laughs> is put a little ferret bead there. Yeah. And so if you're the side that's that's not supposed like say you plug into your computer and your computer is the side that has it connected well then now you you put a little bead there and now you effectively stop that ground loop from happening whereas if the other side is completely open on the shield then on your side you still at least have some connection there that will sync that in- interference noise down uh, into your circuit. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, it's it's important to note that you don't necessarily stop the ground because it's yes. uh, it's frequency dependent. You stop high yes. frequency crap from, or you yes. you you, like I said, you coerce it to coerce choose it. a different path. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I'm um, curious. Um, what what generally what uh, bead do you use or what um. Is it like hundred um, ohm like at hundred megahertz or something like that? Six hundred ohm. Or yeah, something. something actually, I think like that's that. what it is. Uh, it's about hundred ohms at hundred megahertz. Yeah, and uh, 
like if anyone ever opens up one of my designs that has USB, it has that. <laughs> and it's not something I ever uh I don't remember where I picked it up from. I think I did see a design that did that. And I was having problems passing FCC at one point on like the USB stuff. Hmm. And I saw and I was at that point I was just connecting the shield directly to ground. And we were having problems with that. And I saw this design that basically gives you a little decoupling while also still allowing it to be connected a little bit. I think that's a good word for it. Decoupling your ground in a way. Yeah. Yeah. And cut the trace, put, put a, this bead on there and boom, it was perfectly quiet. So that's been your bead of choice. And I just did on every design. Cause I, ever since I started doing it, don't, I haven't had a single, you know, emissions problem. You know, okay, that right there. Uh, I got a little bit of a tangent, but but it, it's funny. Uh, that that right there is one of the hardest parts about teaching engineering. And get, hang on, real quick. Uh, I I was actually talking with somebody at work who's super eager about learning electronics. I, this this guy is awesome. Like every day, he's just like, God, can you give me some more information? I read through you what you said yesterday. Let me let me hear stuff. And and he'll he'll pull up schematics and be like, What does this part do? What does that part do? And I'll, I'll walk through it. And like so many times he'll point at things where he's like, why, why did you choose this? Why is this there? And it's like, I, I can't exactly tell you why it's there because the circuit might function if it wasn't there. Um, but like it's there for protection or it's there for like uh, to for, for Parker's situation where it's like, oh, it's got to pass FCC or it's got to be blah, blah, blah. Or, or like, well, it's good to know why yeah like, of course why is the ferrite be there it's to decouple the shielding because one side of your usb has to be the shield has to be connected to ground yeah yeah but if you on the other side is also connected that's bad because you so you have to play this middle ground now could you spend time to figure out what frequency like what's the best bead to put there sure sure right yeah, but like why do you like, choose 100 ohms and not 120 ohms or 600 or a different or frequency or a different frequency? Because you, you could actually, the best thing is to figure out what frequency you need to reject. Yeah. And then pick that frequency. And then I, I wouldn't even know how you would figure out what impedance either. You might have to just try. I guess you can simulate it Ugh. and figure out what, <laughs> um, and then sweep the impedance value. Hmm. That's how you, I think that's how you would sanely figure that out (laughs) (laughs) you could probably calculate it but to be honest i uh, think i think a lot of people do it the way you did where it's like you're at fcc testing you failed solder one in you didn't fail cool that's it that's the one yeah Uh, well it's we talked about this before where like why 0.1 microfred as like a decoupling cap Uh uh-huh yeah where it is i can't remember the, I think there, there is an we optimal value, about. but it would take more work to find it. Yeah, it takes more work to find it. And 0.1 microfarads is so overkill for it that it's fine. Yeah, 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 yeah. But, I, you know, I, I saw, I saw, uh, we talked about this in the past, but like there, there was some article we were reading where it was like, you can go up to, like, you can go to the, to the moon with your, bypass caps and it's sort of like of course there's way diminishing returns at some point but uh point one one ten like they tried a bunch of different values and it's like everything worked yeah yeah the 
I think what's important on bypass caps is the distance between the voltage, the voltage rail and your ground that you're trying to basically bypass um, is really close together. So a smaller value is more beneficial there. Mm. Like if you put a big, you know, a twelve oh six or something. Think about the 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 thing I was think, talking about earlier is like tweak the knobs the other way yeah. and think about what happens. Think about if you put a ginormous resistor down as your bypass cap. Now your pads are freaking ginormous away, yeah. and now you have these big problems with how far the current has to go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You, you know, in in my um, in my layout techniques, I've actually started now. I'll lay out my board outline because most of the time that's already prefixed for me. And whenever I place down a, com a part, an, an active component, the very next thing I do is place its bypass caps. Yeah. Uh, and then, then all of my analog or digital stuff has to conform to where the bypass caps yeah. are. I no, prioritize. I, that's why I would do it. Is the um, place your component where you might think it is the best spot to, for it to be. Yeah. And then the next thing is all the bypass caps that that chip needs. And, and the next thing after that is the vias that service power and ground. Yes. Yeah. Exactly. Then then and, route um, everything else. Yeah, and I typically do this is also way overkill too is if a chip has multiple VCCs and grounds it depends on the layout, usually one bypass cap per VCC or ground pin combo. Mm. So if it has Every chip's got a VCC and a ground, yeah. like voltage and ground. Yeah. So you have one. Sometimes you get like two grounds and two power pins or multiple, like microcontrollers, that's common. And so you get share those. But, but if they're far enough apart, I'll start adding more bypass caps. 100%. Yeah. Um, yeah, to fill in. So like if one has... Uh, one VCC, one ground, and then another ground, but the other ground's like somewhere else. And it's not like a uh, logic pin, like a uh, like a clear pin or something. That's just, you're just tying the ground just because you don't care. Um, but it's actually a supply pin. Yeah. Then I would put a, also a bypass there. Yeah, yeah. I, I think I think a good rule of thumb is just to start with if it's a if it's a supply pin, it gets its own bypass cap. The mm -hmm. the one situation where I I'm not maybe not one but one situation that I would consider uh, sharing like uh, pins with with a power is if I know one is extremely low current like if it's a reference pin and it's really close to another power pin I'll tie those together that's fine okay because it has such low current that it's that the reference pin is just reading the voltage kind of thing. Like, mm -hmm. uh, like a it's V battery, you'll, you'll see those on microcontrollers, like a battery sense pin or something like that. That's going to have so low current. If it's going to be negligible, I'll tie that to another power. Pin. Yeah. It's got a mega ohm input and penis. Yeah, right. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. If, if the layout supports it, it like, it's not worth the extra penny to put a bypass cap down on it. Exactly. It might even be worth to just drop a via and put that to power and not even bypass it if, if it has no impact on the microcontroller. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So um, do we want to talk about Python or do we want to keep talking about like layout stuff? I mean, we're like 40 minutes deep. We can push Python out. <laughs> okay. Yeah. I'm, it's, well, I, I'm, I'm, so instead of and Python coding, it's going to be about and layout design yeah because our uh next topic is coil cap 
uh, coil cap. That'd be cool, actually. Coil cap? About, but coil craft yeah. has elevated inductors. I put elevated in like quotes. Um, so I found this on Twitter. And uh, it's basically, think about an inductor. And so it's got uh, like a surface mount con- uh, inductor. Uh, let's say a wire around one that you're using for like a switch mode power supplies or stuff like that. Yeah. But instead of like a normal J lead, the J lead is taller. It's got it's got leg extensions. It's got legs. Yeah. Um. So in, uh. So yeah. So basically, the bottom of the coil doesn't touch the PCB, just the J leads do. And what that allows you to do is when you're doing switch mode power supply stuff is now you can put like your feedback caps and resistors and stuff like that. Or maybe your diode, like under the package, and even make your loops even shorter. Yeah, I, I saw some images where they put the controller under the uh, the inductor. Yeah, so that that was uh, another thing. Is there's a company? Apparently, there's a couple other companies, but this is one that I found. Um, a company called Torex Semiconductor makes a combined switch mode controller and inductor like package. Mm. So you put the whole thing down on your PCB. It's kind of a cool idea. The, the the part like as soon as I saw that, like I had there was a bunch of thoughts going through my head where it's like I've read so many data sheets where uh it seems like the rhetoric in the data sheet would make this like don't do this. Like putting putting the controller inside the field that the inductor is uh generating or or is just part of the inductor seem like no okay, so if if the if the Controller IC is adjacent to the inductor. That's one thing. But you're putting it in the plane of the inductor. That seems wrought with issues. I I, I'm, I don't know if I can necessarily speak to them, but just like from a gut feel, yeah, sure, that's great. You've, you've shaved off a millimeter on your loop, but have you introduced more issues by putting it inside the actual field of the, uh, the inductor? I'm not sure. Apparently not. I guess not, right? Yeah. Apparently you just get better performance. <laughs> that's kind of legit. The one thing that's interesting is like, okay, cool. You you can do that now. Now, how do you how do you uh I guess relay that information to your contract manufacturer? Cuz now they have to have some really unique ways of assembling your board. Yeah, um so Look up part number XCL205 by Torex if you just want to look at the data sheets. Um, but yeah, so that was my next thing is, so we have XYRS, which is X location, Y location, rotation, and side. We're going to go 3D. Actually, it's technically is 3D, so we have to go 4D. <laughs> yeah, because sequence of placement. <laughs> yeah, so now, because usually... That is something that most uh, con- man- excuse me, contract manufacturers have to pay attention to. Well, mainly with older machines, because your your head and your nozzle on the pick and place is short mm. on the older, like a GSM, like our old GSM at Macrofab, had a really big head and a really short nozzle, which is great for high speed because it's very rigid. But you can't place small parts next to big parts in any order you have to actually have to pick an order and usually you put smaller parts down or lower and height parts down first and then you put bigger 
parts up. You can now, also with with machines you can run into parts like physically collide with them. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so, that's all I was yeah explaining. Uh, yeah, um, uh, our machine we have to pay a lot of attention to that. Yeah. Whereas like a Micronic has really skinny tall heads, which generally you actually don't really run into that problem a lot. Um, so you can. If you put a ceramic capacitor right next to an electrolytic capacitor, yeah, you're going to have problems and you have to put the order in correct. Um, but most pick and place machines nowadays, like part of making the package is you're putting in the height mm -hmm. and it automatically does its own collision avoidance. Absolutely, yeah. Um, but, which actually would kind of solve this problem where I'm actually thinking about. Because the inductor is going to be higher, so of course it's going to place it after that, after the parts underneath. Uh, yeah, so. I guess it, I guess it has to. It's just I've never run into a part that goes over a part, except for um, we have one product that we place a shield on. Yeah, a shield goes over, yeah. and I I would guess if you, I would tell your contract manufacturer this is what you want. <laughs> yeah. Um. Because they are going to be like, wait, what? <laughs> yeah, because most it's just people odd. have never seen it's these kind really of parts odd. before. Yeah. Um. Like, uh, actually, on Pinotar, I have um, surface mount components underneath through hole components because I want my fuses to light up when they are active. Oh right, yeah. I backlit my fuses because <laughs> it looks cool. <laughs> you, you mean you don't you don't have them on like a breathe circuit that makes them like soft glow at different rates? I, that would be cool. <laughs> that would and be totally really cool. useless. But then I have to control them with the microcontroller. Oh, yeah, and I think yeah. we're um pretty much maxed out on IO on on Pinotar. Um so Fabio in chat says can't do AOI though. Would that be a problem? Um it really depends on the technology that you're sticking underneath the uh inductor or underneath the part for uh, an instance if it's just path like let's say it's just returns uh and your controller and your feedback loops for a, a service mount uh excuse me for a uh switch mode power supply you probably don't even need to aoi those like 99.99 percent of the time it's gonna be fine because hmm. there's two pin power parts yeah um, you always have x-ray available too. Right? Yeah. You do have x-ray if it's that important, I guess. Um, the development thing is the part that sucks though. Like if you're trying this for the first time oh, and you're yes. needing to probe points. Yeah. Good luck. Yeah. Yeah. That, that would be tough. I would, I would almost, okay. If this was the first one coming off the line, I think what I would do in this situation is tell my CM don't populate the inductor. Uh, I'll solder on all my little wires to be able to access points. I'll solder the inductor on. I can validate. Um, and then in the future prototypes, once I have it right, then you place all of it. Yeah, yeah. Um, the... Oh, I had something. I this just seems right like now. if you need the most ultra-compact... Oh, that no, that's that's what I was going with. Is um, I would see this design. Like, why would you use this design? Why would you use this design? One to minimize board area, mm -hmm. make stuff more compact, and 
that would lead you to either smaller devices where are going to be really hard to AOI to begin with because how the density is insane. Yeah. And or two, lower the cost of your of your assembly. Now, one thing I was actually thinking of that's probably actually more difficult for your CM on these kind of devices is heat shadowing. Mm, yep. Doing reflow. That is one thing that's going to be interesting to try to handle, especially if you, if you have a lot of. If it's a simple board, like a compact board and you running like just QFNs and like um, a couple couple uh bleeded components that kind of stuff it's probably gonna be fine but if you're running like a bga technology next to this thing <laughs> yeah that's where you might cut run into issues yeah i you know i run into heat shadowing with simple components like uh like electrolytics on smd stuff like this seems yeah. much more difficult than that so if you if you packed a whole lot of components as close as you possibly could under it. It's like just a giant brick of parts mm-hmm. that are not going to, they're, they're going to get, they're going to not get convected heat. They're going to get basically radiated heat Radiate. and that's got to be enough to solder them. And I bet you it's not in a lot of cases. Yeah. So that, that's, what's going to be interesting. And that's actually a subject that I haven't really ran into in one giving advice for, or, knowing a whole lot about because um, most of my designs are not compact yeah um, or high density um i don't really have that problem of heat shadowing on almost any design i've ever designed um so it would be like how do you is there a way you can pl- design around that or is that more of a cm problem i i have actually an example of it i i recently designed some boards that go in an array that go through our, our uh, reflow oven. And the first time I did it, I, I forgot about heat shadowing or just didn't pay attention to it. And I had uh, improper soldering on some of my components. And the, the thing was, if you look, if, okay, so think of a top-down view of your reflow oven. It's like a giant rectangle with a conveyor belt, right? That goes mm-hmm. left to right. Let's just say left to right. Um, I had an, a, a string of alu- uh, of tall uh, aluminum electrolytics go through, but I had them perpendicular to the motion of the conveyor belt. So all the air that's blowing from the blowers on the inside of the reflow oven would hit the electrolytics and basically get shielded from uh, the things behind it. So one side of all my electrolytics soldered well, the other side did not. Uh, so all I did was I rotated the boards in the array by 90 degrees. So now they conga line through the uh, through the reflow oven. They all solder well. And that's mainly just because the hot air was able to flow evenly across them. On both terminals. On both terminals, yeah. So that is something to pay attention to. And your CM should be able to tell you, like, look at an array and be like, this is not going to solder well. This this is. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, in this situation with these inductors, because they have two legs that wrap underneath them, I would want to rotate the board such that any airflow could flow underneath underneath it. Underneath it. So I wouldn't rotate the legs such that they blocked everything underneath it. That's just guaranteeing issues. That's int- I-, I added more knowledge to my toolbox for design for DFM there. Yeah. 
because if you that's that's one thing if you see if you have two of these parts that are 90 out from each other it's probably not a good idea right right and that, okay so, and that right there is a situation that the cm cannot fix that would yeah. be go back to the engineers and say can you oh, rotate yeah. this Penalize at 45 degrees. <laughs> so so each one gets subpar soldered. <laughs> yeah, subpar soldering. Yeah. I do like reading these uh, app notes, though. Yeah. Because they always have, like, applications. And they always say, like, mobile phones, Bluetooth headsets, PDAs, portable game console. It's, like, like everything. Yeah, but, but also, oh, like, everything that is small. Yeah. What's the electronic dictionary? Oh, that's, that's yeah, a, that's the, there's, they're like, it's a dictionary that, that you just hold in your hand with the, that's not a phone. <laughs> huh. I've never seen it written out like that before. Yeah. But I guess there's also like PDAs in this thing. So this application setup is a little old. Sure. I wonder if that's just like a microcontroller manufacturer's attempt at SEO. Maybe. Probably is. Hmm. You know the thing about stuff, it because you can use it in a, in a smartphone. The part that goes under the inductor, it looks like a QFN style part. It is, yeah. Which that seems like even worse because that itself is blocking heat uh, from getting. Oh, around. oh! On this one, you're talking about the XCL two hundred five Torx. Well, that's a whole, they, they've they combined the inductor and the QFN in one package. Oh, okay, okay, okay. I was looking at another image where they were separate things. Uh, oh, I, yeah. I must so have been Coil looking Craft, at something else. Coilcraft makes like a... Since Coilcraft doesn't actually do semiconductors, yeah. they made this style so you could use your own inductor, basically, right, your right, own right. controller and that kind of stuff. Yeah. But I'm going to try one of these XCL205s uh my next project because... It looks pretty awesome. You just drop it down. You add a couple like external capacitors and boom, you got to switch from a power supply in the size of a, you know, SOIC eight package, man. Okay. Uh, this seems, this is really interesting. Um, the, okay. So this XCL 205, I'm looking at the first page on the data sheet and they have the typical performance characteristics. And uh, if you've ever spent much time doing, uh, switch mode power supplies one of the things that sucks about them is if you need only a little bit of load current from uh, switch mode typically their efficiency is garbage at low yep. current um, and and low current is relative but like if you're dealing with a small thing say let's 10 milliamps or less most of the time you're sacrificing a lot of uh, efficiency on that this one has crazy efficiency for low uh, like it, it, it their curves are saying like 70 percent efficiency all the way down to like a tenth of a milliamp that's mm -hmm. that's impressive because uh, most of the time like that the, the curves are efficient but you got to pull enough juice for them to be efficient yeah. it, it could be part of that is minimizing the loops maybe maybe um because if so that's really attractive those kinds of curves and the, the, these are these are not as good, like because most of the efficiency, like when you do get out to higher currents, they're sitting like 80, 82 percent, which you can get switch modes much higher than that nowadays in, in the low 90s, like 94, 90s. 95. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. But if you need 
but most of those ones that are like 94, 95, that's like at half an amp, right? And most yeah. of my little circuits are not pulling anywhere near that. Yeah, it's a pretty cool little idea. Yeah, I like it. Uh, so let's wrap up this podcast. Great. So that was the Macrofab Engineering Podcast. We were your host, Stephen Craig. And Parker Dolman. Take it easy. Thank you, Yes You Are listener, for downloading our podcast. If you have a cool idea, project, or topic, or layout PCB suggestion, let Steven and I know. Tweet us at MacFab at Longhorn Engineer or at Analog ENG, or email us at podcast at MacFab.com. Also, check out our Slack channel. You can find it at MacFab.com slash Slack, or come listen to our live stream. It's Tuesdays at 6 o'clock Central. Uh at twitch.tv slash macrofab.